0: everyone to Authors on the Air. I'm your host Pam Stack. I'm also a cat wrangler and a book junkie. I am thrilled to be here tonight with someone who just feels like a friend forever. We've been talking for so long. Um Brian Cuban is my guest. Hi Brian. How are you? Hey, how are you Pam? I'm um, well. And he's here to talk about his new book called The Ambulance Chaser. It is Brian's first work of fiction although he's written several other books before, but let me tell you a little bit about who Brian is. Brian is, um, an attorney. He's an author. He's a motivational speaker. Um, his life story is quite interesting. He is the younger brother of entrepreneur Mark Cuban, who most of you know from either shark. Is it shark tank, Brian? Yeah. I don't have a television, so I don't know that (laughs) shark tank and the Dallas Mavericks. Um, so, uh, And and they're very, very close, which is lovely. I'm very thrilled for that. They are very good friends. Um, But Brian had body dysmorphic problems when he was younger. Um, He turned to alcohol and drugs. He was bulimic. And so uh, he finally turned himself over to recovery and has made it his life's work to discuss what happens when all these overlapping issues from bullying to drinking to drugs to bulimia to all of these other issues come into play? He's now so uh, recovered so well and has done such a remarkable job that he is a very in-demand speaker around the country. He goes everywhere to talk about his story. Now, um, you've got a couple books out already, and we're going to talk about those, right, Brian? And then we're going to talk about where... Brian came from addiction to fiction, The Ambulance Chaser. Welcome to the show, Brian Cuban.
1: Thank you. It's such an honor to be here with you.
0: I'm thrilled that you're here with me. I have been looking forward to this interview for, I don't know, we've been talking for months now, haven't we? Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) I want to start from the beginning. Um, Tell me about growing up. What was your life like as a kid?
1: Uh, Well, I grew up in Pittsburgh, PA, born and raised, uh, the middle of three boys. Uh, Mark is the oldest. And I have a younger brother, Jeff, and we were baby boomers uh, back when uh, cell phones were two cups attached to a string, right? Right. And, uh, and social networking was playing uh, kickball right. on the on the basketball court. So those sure. days before the internet. And uh, we were very different. Uh, my two, Mark, Jeff, and I are very different. Mark was, even as a teenager, outgoing, entrepreneurial. And I remember our local newspapers went on strike in Pittsburgh. And he and his buddies, barely old enough to drive, uh, drove out to Cleveland, which is about 200 miles away, bought their newspapers, uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, drove them back to Pittsburgh, and sold them on a street corner in downtown Pittsburgh for twice what they paid for
0: them. Oh my gosh! So you knew
1: he knew how to see me, even as a teen, a young teen. He was uh, he was blowing and going right. But uh, and then my younger brother Jeff uh, was a nationally ranked wrestler in high school, a wow. jock, and. Uh, you know, the prom, the beer parties, and the dates, the girls, and I was I was classic middle child syndrome, and I was shy, I was withdrawn, I tended towards isolation, and uh, I kind of internalized anything negative said about me. I was a heavy kid trending towards obese, and uh, wore it as who I was like a skin-tight suit, Pam, and unfortunately, I had a difficult relationship with my mom, and I'll tell you a little bit about this. But I want to make it clear to your uh, listeners and your watchers that I don't blame my mother for anything I went through. Parents don't cause addiction. Parents don't cause eating yeah. disorders. There's a difference between cause and correlation.
0: Yes, there is. And
1: uh, so we know correlation is it can happen to some people, you know, because things happen at home, but won't happen to others, right? Right. And so uh, there was a lot of fat shaming in my house. Uh, I used to come home, and I used to love Chef Boyardee ravioli and spaghettios. Do you remember those?
0: Who, who didn't love them? You could eat them out of a can. You didn't even. have and to. That's eat
1: exactly them. what I did. That's exactly what I did. Beefaroni. I'd come home, and this is before electric can openers. You get the old can opener, and you go. Eh, mm-hmm. eh, I still have, have one. This, we, Yeah, we didn't have a microwave. You stick right. the spoon in, eat it out of the can. Right. And my mom, my mom would come home, and she sold real estate. And she'd come home and walk into the kitchen and say, Brian, if you keep eating that way, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, these were the things her mother said to her. These right. were the things my great-grandmother said to my grandmother. Generationally. From a, right. it's very, fat-shaming is often handed down generationally. Yes. And I came from an Eastern European uh, Jewish family, uh, the old country, the stereotypical Jewish grandmother, food, 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 right? Right. And my mother had a very verbally and mentally abusive relationship with her mom, uh, who was bipolar, according to my mom. And wow. uh, so she was going through her own stuff and her own mental health issues, and uh and this was at a time in the seventies when a young mother talking about any kind of mental health issues, you could be put in an asylum.
0: Of course, so you, and you your children taken it.
1: away. Yeah. yeah, and so you didn't talk about it, and right. but not under, and So and it ran downhill. I don't blame my mom for that. We have a very good relationship, uh, but not understanding those things, I began to eat more Chef Boyardee ravioli and more Chef Boyardee ravioli, and I became a bigger brine and a bigger brine. Then the bullying really got going in school. And I there's a funny story around that Pam. it was I call it the day of the gold pants. It's not funny probably to the people watching but uh, an interesting story. My I, brother I read Mark, this
0: story. I read this story right. on your blog. It was it was numbing mind numbing to that yeah. for that.
1: And uh, was, my brother Mark had uh, it was during the disco era Saturday Night Fever, John right. Travolta and he was very into that and he had this pair of shiny gold bell bottom disco pants that he gave to me. I know, but this was the seven, mid seventies. And uh,
0: they, I'm just they, I'm wondering if he's watching this on his Twitter feed or something. I'm thinking he's he's gonna kill you.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But he knows he, he loved his disco back then. He was going to the club. We all stuff. did. <laughs> yeah, I was a little young for it, but uh, Mark was into it big time. Uh, but uh, I love Saturday Night Fever. So uh, he gave me these pants, but they fit Mark okay. I had to jump up and down. Spray the water bottle to get in them. My butt looked like fifteen cats trying to get out. Use the shoehorn, and and uh, but I didn't care because I loved my brother. He gave me these pants, and I wore them to school, and the kids made fun of me and you know, a fat pig and this and that, and uh, and I developed a very self-deprecating sense of humor, Pam, uh, so the kids wouldn't know how much it hurt me. I Early. became the sad the sad clown. Right? Just, yeah, I know. I'm headed to Sears to get a bra, right? for my man boobs and I laugh about it. But in my mind, these were the popular kids. These were the, you know, all the kids getting their first date, going to the football games, you know, give their first kiss, all the things I wanted so badly, but just felt that no girl could ever be interested in me. But I thought if I hung around these popular kids, it would kind of rub off and it would be like a fraternity hazing. And one day they'd say, you're one of us, right? But that's not how bullying works. It all culminated, I was walking home with these kids wearing my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants, and they're making fun of me, and I'm laughing it off, and they start pulling at them, and before I know it, they had physically assaulted me. They had tore them off down to my Fruit of the Loom tidy, tidy whiteys my uh, Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt, my kids' tennis shoes, and my tube socks with the three rings around them. You remember of those? Course. yes. Three different color rings. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, and they went on like they had done. They threw them in the street, the shreds. They went on like they had done the funniest thing ever. I I pecked my way out into the busy street, got them, covered up my tidy whities, and uh, waddled home. People gawked as they drove by, cars whizzed by. No one stopped. And I got home, and there was no one home. It was funeral quiet. And I tiptoed down the wooden stairs to our basement, but the stairs creaked. And with every creak, Pam, I thought the whole world knew my shame. I didn't know how to stand up to bullies, and my brothers knew, my parents knew, and the kids who did it knew, and all the girls at the school knew. And so I found a wastebasket, and I buried those shreds at the bottom of the wastebasket, hoping that it would bury my shame. But that's not how shame works. That's not how trauma works. And that incident was so traumatic in my life that I could go to that spot in Pittsburgh and show you where it happened. And that was kind of the beginning, the kind of the perfect storm of a very shy, withdrawn young man. Uh, who was bullied, who had a difficult relationship with his mother. And it kind of all came together in this traumatic event for me to start looking at myself in the mirror and just seeing this fat pig, this monster who would never be loved, never get married, never have a girlfriend, and would always be unworthy of anything. And that was the beginning as a teenager.
0: It seems to me, you know, that it's particularly hard when you're a young person and you get bullied because you're not fully developed. Even your brain's still not fully developed. You haven't lived enough to understand um, you don't need to be popular or anything like that. You really were in the perfect storm. You had a very... very entrepreneurial older brother that you looked up to, and then you had an athletic younger brother, and then this crazy relationship with your mom. Um, so I can understand, and I can I recall kids who spiraled in that sense. People that I knew, and this and the thing is, Brian, at, at that time for us, we didn't know what it was called. It was not called bullying. They no, were just, not in the seventies. No. There, it wasn't called bullying. Uh, you know, I mean, I. I graduated, I'm 67. I graduated high school in 72. I remember there were either the kids you didn't want to hang out with or the ones you did. And, and the, the bad kids were the ones that, you know, smoked around the school grounds. You, the girls who, who slept around and you assumed, but never, never would I ever think about something called bullying. Yeah. There were kids who were rough on other students, but you know, I felt fearful to step in and say anything. I didn't want someone to hit me or push me. And I felt if I tried to stick up for someone, that's what would happen. Is sure. that what happened to your friends? And is that what happened to you? Did you withdraw? I did withdraw.
1: And I really, uh, I, I had one friend uh, who was a good friend. And we we were sort of the outcast. I was the outcast, right? Right. Where uh, I was the, uh, what's the crazy red haired guy, the movie. Uh what was that? But I was the Napoleon dynamite oh. and uh, kind of the outcast. And, uh, we used to, we hung out together and we'd skip school and we ended up smoking pot. And we'd, uh, and we had my, my buddy, Phil and I ended up taking a, a Greyhound bus for $50 across the United States after I graduated high school. And, uh, just to Santa Monica beach where, uh, we hung out and drank and smoked pot, but he was my only friend. He was, he was literally my only friend and I was very withdrawn. And, uh, I went on to college to Penn state and uh, it all kind of before I knew it. And before I it had a name, really I was binging and purging. i had become bulimic. I didn't know what it was called. And then I was drinking and uh, yeah, guys do get eating disorders, people.
0: Oh yeah. And, uh, just like they I get began, breast cancer.
1: Yeah. Yep. And uh, I became an alcoholic in college in the seven. And uh, now we're going into the late seventies and eighties. And then I was able to do okay. And I, uh, you were a and functioning
0: was, alcoholic in school, to
1: the extent you can. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I, I didn't. I, I was a person who you look at it. Okay, all the kids are drinking, but I was drinking alone. I was definitely an alcoholic. I was drinking alone, and I was drinking in the alleys of Penn State with a uh, bottle liquor I'd buy at the state store, so I could I'd finish off a bottle before I'd even go into the bar alone. Oh
0: my gosh!
1: Uh, so uh, I was definitely an alcoholic. And uh, did
0: you know then that you had an alcohol problem?
1: No, I had no, no clue. I, it was survival. It was how I survived uh, because without the alcohol, I was in pain. I, I, I was in pain, and I was lonely. And, uh, and did your family
0: was, recognize any of this? You were you hit it very well. Well, in
1: the say you have to remember in this again in the seventies there wasn't much awareness as it was, and I right. was away at Penn State. I was 150 miles away at school, right? Living in living in a dorm. And you're doing I mean your other seventeen and eighteen years old and nineteen year olds they don't you know they're 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 in their own lives. they're not recognized they're drinking too. they're drinking too, you're drinking too right so, so nobody's asking for help. there are no resources for help.
0: How did uh, you get into law school with um you maintain grades well enough you passed the l s a t so did. how how did that happen for you? and what happened in law school? did anything change? Did you have any? you know uh, lifestyle changes or did it only get worse
1: that that's a wonderful question uh i never wanted to be a lawyer ever ever really? i was i wanted to be a police officer that would have worked out well with my cocaine <laughs> with my love of cocaine back then right. but uh but that came later though but uh i uh i wanted to be a cop and i was sitting and i remember it like it was yesterday i was sitting in the placement office at school looking through Thumbing through police officer jobs. This is before computers. They're these little pamphlets. Sure. And there are two guys next to me who were from Pittsburgh, who I kind of knew, but I didn't know them from Pittsburgh. I knew him from school. And uh, they're talking about taking the LSATs and talking about going to the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. So it just it just clicked in my head that not that I wanted to be a lawyer, be Clarence Darrow, emulate Atticus Finch, change the world. It clicked that I law school is three years, and I can stay in school three more years and not have to show my true ugliness to anyone. I could binge and purge. Wow. I can drink. And I'd also begun running excessively, exercise bulimia. And I can engage in these be- same behaviors that I did at Penn State and just survive moment to moment. Because I, I th- these behaviors were like my line of security blanket. I owned them. Sure. I carried them with me everywhere. And I didn't want to have to share them with anyone. I didn't want to have to share it with the world so they can see how you know, see the ugly Brian, the monster Brian that everyone else saw in my mind. They didn't see that. Right. But that's what I projected. So for those reasons only, I decided to go to law school.
0: Wow. that's amazing to me. So you graduate law school. Do you go into law practice?
1: Well, I graduated
0: law school barely by the skin of my teeth. I
1: graduated. It didn't get any better. Uh, I was an alcoholic all through law school. Uh, again, I was binging and purging and, uh, in law school, it's not quite the same. You you actually have to study. And I wasn't going to class. I was going to class drunk and hungover. And uh, you can get away with it to some degree in college. But in law school, it doesn't work that way. And I graduated by the skin of my teeth. Uh, but I did graduate and I moved to Dallas, Texas. I picked up with a duffel bag and $100 to my name. And I uh, took a Greyhound bus to Dallas, Texas, where Mark and Jeff, where I am now, where both my brothers live, Labor Day, 1986. Uh, Mark met me at the bus station. I moved in with him. And I hadn't passed the Texas bar and uh, trying to find work. And it was like throwing gasoline on a fire pan because yeah. they didn't know my problems, Mark and Jeff, and I wasn't going to tell them. They're out y- drinking. Another,
0: fa- You felt another failure. And so it's snowballing by this time. Well, and it's it, really it, it, getting some steam going.
1: Yeah. It, it was just more, it was just rinse, wash, repeat. Right. Because they're out day, they're young, they're dating, they're out at the bar. So I fit right in. And then in the summer of 1987, uh, in a bathroom of a nightclub in Dallas, Texas, a, a bar, I discovered the one thing that for the first time in my life allowed me to look in the mirror. And I started my journey as Jason Feldman of the ambulance chaser. Uh, I discovered cocaine. And for the first time in my life, uh, at least for the moments of those highs, I looked in the mirror and loved myself. Wow. And, uh, and that was now I'm in my twenties and I'd never loved myself ever, except when I was snorting cocaine. And so that began my journey of cocaine and alcohol, and cocaine and alcohol took over my life as a practicing lawyer. I went into personal injury law, and uh, I was a borderline to often blatantly unethical lawyer in how I got my cases. And I know your readers are going to, your watchers are going to be, does this guy still have his license? Yeah, but it wasn't for a lack of trying to lose it. Uh and I say that tongue in cheek, the lawyers, there are a lot of lawyers struggling and they do lose their lives. As
0: there are doctors, by the way. Yeah. So. They lose
1: yeah. they lose their careers, they lose their family, and that all happened to me. Uh three divorces, two trips to a psychiatric hospital. Uh I decided to end my life in, by suicide in two thousand and five, the summer of two thousand and five. And um my at the urging of a friend, my brothers came into my house and I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. And it was cocaine and everywhere, and that wasn't even my "Quote unquote rock bottom" because uh, I wouldn't find recovery for another uh, year and a half. About good
0: grief, how but did you find recovery, Brian?
1: Easter weekend, I had begun dating a girl. Uh, her name is Amanda. and she moved in with me. And uh, she didn't she didn't do drugs and a very light drinker. But I was there. I had a JD in law, but a PhD in camouflaging my behaviors. Sure. And she she moved in with me, and uh, it was Easter weekend, two thousand seven. Uh, she went away for the weekend. I went out. Next thing I know of Pam, it's two days later. I'm in bed. She's looking down at me. There's cocaine sprawled out on my dresser, you know, lined out. There's alcohol bottles. And uh, she didn't know anything about my problems. She's, she's probably trying to figure out if she walked in the right house. I'm trying to get my bearings. Two days had passed. I blacked out. I had a blackout. Uh, and trying to figure out first what day it is and what time. And what lie I can tell to explain this law and order orgy of evidence, you know, law and order episode that I might not be the person I represented myself to be. And we ended up with our second trip back to the psychiatric hospital. And that is when I decided it was time to turn things around because I'd be dead. And so that was Easter weekend, 2007, Easter. And she she stuck stuck by me, by the way. Uh, She stood by me. And I found recovery and we have now been married over five years and been together going on 16.
0: So I'm so glad to hear that. Thanks. So what have, what motivated you to first of all, be so open and honest about your own struggle that you write books about it and you go on lectures, you go speak to charities and nonprofits and and law practices and colleges what brought you to where you are, Brian, because that's a lot of stuff to be spilling out into the, into the public forum and you know, and waiting for someone to hit back at you. Obviously, you've got your self-esteem, you have your confidence, you have your recovery, you work on it every day. How did you make that connect, the jump from recovering to let me go and tell my story? Uh, it was, it
1: was really, there was no bright line. It was a progress. It was a process, right? I had, I had written, uh, I had written my first book, Shattered Image, which is more about body image and, uh, right. eating disorders. And at that time it got a lot of attention. It got a lot of attention because of my last name and I'm a guy, right? So all of a sudden colleges and different rotary clubs and colleges and all these different people are asking me to come talk to them about the book. Right. And the book itself was self-published. It didn't do that well in terms of but you sales, know, so right?
0: The, you know, the cover for that book is really, really good. And if somebody that wants to know a picture of what body dysmorphia is, yes. to look at the cover of that book, that's the best definition I've ever seen.
1: Yes, yes. And the, the, the artist is very proud of that cover. That is an, and, it's uh, an awesome yeah. cover. And, you know, and we talk about when people write books and they come to me and ask, I say, what do you want to be, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I wrote wrote Satterd Image, because it was more of a recovery catharsis, because it was the first time I'd actually uh, told these secrets, shameful secrets. And what I learned was that there were so many guys and and, and women and, uh, you know, however people gender identified that were struggling with shame. And the shame was keeping them from just finding that one person who can help them. Are uh, taking that first step, and I, I've learned over the years that the biggest repressor of recovery is shame. Yes, and so, and 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 so, my when I began to realize that as I went out on the speaking circuit and learning the speaking art of speaking, as you know, as I as I went the art of public speaking, I realized that people would email and come up to me always after right, and thank you. I thought I was the only the one, only especially one. guys with eating disorders body image issue. I thought I was the only one. Now I feel like there is what? Hope. Hope. Absolutely. Now I, so I realized that for just maybe one person, I can give them hope. And what I also realized that I, what I wanted to be when I grew up, because I knew that because of the uh, shattered image was never going to be a national, uh, you know, a New York Times bestseller, but what it became was my calling card to a lot of speaking engagements, right? Who, bu- who bought a lot of books and handed them out?
0: There you go. You know, there's so, there's I I like the symmetry of it. You know, the 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 the, the cause, the effect, um, the the redemption. Those are, I think, the best kind of stories. And I would invite you in a heartbeat to, to come and speak. I think you're a great speaker. I've watched a lot of your speeches on your okay. YouTube page. Um, you wrote another book called the addicted the addicted attorney, right? The Addicted the lawyer, lawyer Tells of the
1: Barbs, Booze, Blow, and return. Redemption. Right. Those
0: What's four that words that? personify
1: my life, right?
0: Well, so what? Well, they used to. Redemption they is... To.
1: But you know, who else do those four words personify? Well,
0: the, the other people Jason. with the same condition. Yeah. Jason. Yeah, yeah, Jason. Goldman. There they go. That's so, right. So when we're, we're going to talk about Ambulance Chaser in just one second, because really, right. today is your book lunch. Happy bur- Book Birthday. Yes, today. Thank you. yes. Like, uh, and, the But thank lawyer. Yes. Was more,
1: I mean, now I'm in recovery and I was able to look back on my years as a lawyer and the people I interacted with. And I did some research and I knew from my experience that lawyers have a very difficult time seeking help because uh, we are educational. I call it educationalized, my own word, there to uh, take advantage of vulnerability, not allow ourselves to be vulnerable, right? It is viewed as a weakness even today. And so I decided there was a much needed space for this kind of book, and I did my research, and there was nothing 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 and uh and so I decided to write the addicted lawyer and i finished it up i uh the literary agent was interest process was interesting in the uh in the uh proposal process right the query process right so i had i i had a uh, i had a good proposal and i had interest, but here was the problem i had literary agent interest. Here was the problem. They all wanted me to change it. Why? Because it is not a pure memoir, right? It can't be categorized. It not only has my story, it has stories of other lawyers. It has tips. Because it could, because an agent couldn't put it into memoir or this. Right, or right. That,
0: Yeah, I understand. And And that I blame on Amazon, by the way, because we didn't used to worry about, if you recall going into bookstores a long time ago, you went into fiction, nonfiction, cooking, and self-help. And that was it. So if, and unfortunately, that's just the way it is now.
1: Yeah, and I refuse. And I, I, and I, and I said, no, this is, uh, you know, this is what it's going to be. And if that means I have to self-publish it or wherever, that's what's going to happen. But I was, I was lucky to get connected with, uh, and I know some people may not like them, but they've been wonderful to me. Post Hill Press. They've been fabulous. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, took a, uh, you know, they have other books besides what they started with. Right. Uh, and they took a chance on me and the book ended up doing, uh, you know, niche well, niche well, it, it's, Good. uh, probably sold now four years. it sold probably close to 8,000 copies.
0: There's nothing uh, wrong with so that, that at all.
1: No. And that's it. That's niche well. Right. Right. Uh, and so it is very popular, became very popular in legal circles and, uh, and things like that. So, uh, that is how I got with the publisher I'm at today. And that book, uh, you know, I have really been, uh, I speak at law firms. I speak at recovery events. I speak at a lot of bar association events. Right. And what was interesting was as, as I was finishing up, uh, the addicted lawyer, all of a sudden it was, and she's wonderful. I love her book. She gave me a, she gave me a blurb too. Blurb. Lisa Smith came out with the girl walks out of a bar. Yeah, oh. right. And so I'm like, oh man. <laughs> and so, uh, but her, I, Lisa and I are wonderful friends. And I love her that. Book, her book cool. is wonderful, and then I'm not above pitching a good friend's book. Oh, good. I love that. That's a, good to a girl know. walks out of a bar is a wonderful memoir. So. But uh, and but then uh, the New York Times also wrote a piece about lawyers and addiction, and they mentioned my book. So all of a sudden, and then a national study came out, and all of a sudden it's just boom, boom, boom. And I didn't know any of this was going to
0: happen. The I moon aligned with Mars on this, right? Every, yeah. Yes, everything yeah. aligned, and
1: all of a sudden the Addicted Lawyer was on the radar.
0: I think it's great. I, I really do. Um, I, I read br- uh, blurbs from both of the books. I have not read them because, you know, I was mm-hmm. reading this one and in, in preparation for our discussion anyway. Um, but you now have two nonfiction books out there. You've spoken across the country and in Canada to all of these big groups. Um, that's a pay it, paying it forward in a big way, Brian, by the way. That's paying it forward. You've taken what was your own shame and your own humiliation, self-lack of confidence, and you've put yourself out in the open. And I have to congratulate you for doing that. Well, thank
1: um, you. and you.
0: <laughs> When you speak in groups, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I've just, no, no, I, no. I lost, I lost this question earlier. So I wanted to ask you again, um, when you're, when you're speaking to a big group, do you look at your audience and say, aha, I know, I know, you know, you know who you're talking to. You see that person who's got the same problem you had. Are you able to pick up those cues from people when you're speaking? Well,
1: we have to start with the premise that most people are coming to hear me speak. You know, there are going to be people who are struggling. I know there are people struggling in the audience. That's why, you know, that's why they're asking me to speak, right? Right, right. So that's going to be a large part of the demographic regardless. But I'm always, anytime I speak, I'm always scanning the audience for reactions and see, right. uh, you know, because in my talk, people cry, they laugh. Sure. And, uh, and they cheer, right? So I right. take people through a wide range of emotions uh, which is, you know, which I want to be authentic, uh, with because people know when you're not. And so, sure, I mean, uh, I, 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 I identify with the people in the audience and, uh, I'm very passionate about what I talk about. And it's, it, it's interesting because people said, always say, given your childhood and your shyness, how do you do that? Well, you put me in a nightclub or I don't walk in a nightclub, but you put me in a social thing and I'll go to the wall, right? Right. I'm still that I'm still that rich shy person in a social situation, but uh, in in speaking, I'm passionate and I'm not yeah. shy.
0: I am uh, I do a lot of public speaking myself, and so I, that's why I ask you. Uh, I talk about domestic violence because I'm a survivor myself. Mm-hmm. So I look into the audience, and I I can almost pick the people out of the audience who are my target audience, who are the targets of my discussion. Yeah. I don't. You know,
1: I don't necessarily look for that. What I do is I look at the audience. I't do know I don't know what the beginning of my speech is until I look at the audience. since every talk, is different. Every you're, talk you're, is different. You're an off-the-cuff speaker, too, huh? Uh, for well, I, you you're all you have the same points you hit, right? You change what? things up. Right. But uh, I, I don't know what about 10 percent of my talk is going to be until I, until I actually look in the eyes of the audience. It's interesting and see who's there and make contact. Uh, I've changed up openings on the fly because I'll see something, I'll smell something, I'll hear something, I'll hear, I'll hear something as I'm walking up to the stage. Right. Uh, And so uh, you're keeping it in the moment,
0: too. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, you want to be authentic. You've made a jump to fiction and how interesting that the ambulance chaser should be the title of your book. Not, I mean, it, it just goes to say you were a personal injury lawyer. You know, um, this is kind of an autobiographical piece of fiction. Uh, you've learned your, from your own experience and written it into this really twisty little tale. Tell us what made you decide to go to fiction? Uh, what, how many
1: times can you tell your own story in nonfiction? Right, in memoir. Well, that's true. Uh, that's
0: true. But yeah. uh,
1: it, it, it started with a very dark, ahead uh, a very dark genesis. Uh, Pam, I used, to, I was having this reoccurring dream, and this was years ago. This reoccurring dream that took place in Pittsburgh, in the area I grew up, where a childhood friend, my childhood best friend, and I are throwing bodies into a bonfire.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay, and these
1: and these bodies are burning, but their eyes are open. These eight ball eyes staring at us and then the and then the dream fast forwards to brian as an adult and i have this awful feeling in my stomach that i'm going to be arrested for the for these bodies and for these murders okay and then why haven't i been arrested what's going on and i wake up disoriented with this you know with this beach ball in my gut like where are the cops are they coming and confused and so you try to figure out what dreams mean, and I, every time I would try to figure out what it meant, and i talk to my therapist about it, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm jogging, and I'm out for a jog, and I'm thinking about it, and What's and it just hit me. There's characters, there's a plot, and the plot's not a new plot, old bodies coming back to the present, right? Right. It's not a new thing, and uh, and so I think I may have a core, at least, of a story, of a fictional story. And now it went through many ideations after that. I'm sure uh, of different things. But that was the genesis of the ambulance chaser.
0: Fabulous. Let's tell everybody you get you get your elevator pitch and take as many floors as you need to tell the story. Um, because this is a work of fiction, even though you've drawn from your own experiences to tell. Don't this. we all, right? Don't all don't all uh, fiction authors draw draw uh, I well, you know. Probably other than like fantasy and science fiction, yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, yeah. You write what you know. Yeah, you write what you know. You know, you write what you want to read too. I think. Yeah, and yeah so. and I, I
1: mean, and well, it uh, the, the the ambulance chaser is about a Pittsburgh lawyer, Jason Feldman, who finds himself accused of the murder of a high school classmate thirty years prior. After her remains are discovered in a vacant lot, he is arrested and charged with her murder. He flees and becomes a fugitive from justice to find the one person who can prove his innocence and save the life of his abducted son.
0: It is a fascinating book. I have to tell you, for a debut fiction novelist, this book is very, very, very good i oh, had a, a fun time reading it i read it on my kindle because i'm e- it's easier for me to read on mm-hmm. a kindle i can change the font um but i and i'm glad i have this you know i'm going to send you a book plate to sign so i can stick it in here and well, I i'm hoping to, i
1: can meet you and sign and sign i hope
0: you can too i'd love to have you down here yes. in fort myers to to take you to all the bookstores around here you know I'd, we've got a I'd ton of them and I, are you you know, i I'm thrilled that it worked out for you that you've got this book down. Are you thinking? I know today's the launch day, but this book has been done for a while now. Have you thought of your next book?
1: Oh, yeah, there's a sequel. If you had the epilogue, right? The epilogue uh, leaves many things open, and I don't want to give it away. No,
0: of course not. But,
1: uh, Jason by no means completes the hero's journey, right? and uh, and there are a lot of uh, strings hanging and that. Uh, that are fertile ground for a second book that i had actually already started but stopped Good. to uh market the ambulance chaser but uh, you it's a fun read and i, I don't think anyone i mean it's i think it's a fun read and it's certainly not literary fiction right
0: no it's it's, uh, it is a, it's a nice little book of suspense it's a murder yeah. mystery and it's very suspenseful i give it five stars
1: so oh, as soon as you.
0: I it's, as soon as I can get up to Amazon and I'll go there and you yeah, know pension my but, little
1: thing. And that's it, all it, I want people. I was interviewed by the Pittsburgh Jewish uh the, the Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle and I, I read the interview this morning. He said it's uh it's kind of he, he he did compare it to Grisham, which I think is nice, but uh whatever you think of John Grisham, I love some of his stuff. I love books. him. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh for and a while. Scott I
0: would, and David Baldacci, all those people, you know, whom yeah, I know. Yeah. They're all terrific, yeah, and they're great writers. And yeah, listen, they all, they all started off with a book just like this. Yes. Just and, like uh, this. So it's
1: just a fun, fast read. And is it something that I think somebody will remember six months later, other than it was a fun, fast read? No. You know, no. no. It was, well, it's not meant for that.
0: Yeah, I you know, when your next book comes out, then they'll remember that they read that's this right, and say, right. "I want to go ahead and read that." So, you know, you've got to be producing every 6 months now, Brian. That's just that's all right. and, uh, uh,
1: and when I when I when I when I uh, start talking about my second book, that's when they'll go back and say, "Man, I really loved this first book." There you and go. A, and I want them to say it was a lot of fun.
0: That's right. I um I have taken you for an awful long time, but I've just been so looking forward to talking to you. Do you mind if we take a few more minutes and talk a little bit more? Absolutely. I'm okay. So I, um, I want you to think back before you wrote your first book and think now about this first fiction book. Has writing changed you personally in any way?
1: Absolutely. It's part of my identity. If if uh, I went into recovery April eighth two thousand and seven, on April seventh two thousand and seven, or even April eighth, or for the year after that, if you would have said to me, Brian, you're going to have three books, you're going to do your one of them's an Amazon bestseller, uh, the Addicted Lawyer, and you're going to write your you're going to have a great launch, which it's been, you know, a great launch. It's uh, been a great launch. Yeah, yeah, and uh, for for your first uh, thriller, for your first thriller, slap slap me anytime I say thriller novel, right?
0: <laughs> oh, that's okay you can say thriller
1: yeah. novel it's fine no, it's, uh, it's, uh, for you, uh, of course it's fiction but uh uh it's, i would have said you're out of mind i just want another line of blow right and, and, uh, and because that's all i saw in front of me so yeah writing is part of my identity it's what i do it's what i love it is i'm always writing even when i'm not writing i'm writing in my head right uh i'm looking for i i use my five senses when i watch around a sound, a smell. Okay, yeah, that's that. I can make that work. That leads to this. Uh, I read, you know, I've stopped because I, again, I needed to market, but I read everything I can get my hands on from uh, I read not just legal, not just legal thrillers and uh, not just crime fiction, whether it's Winslow. I love Winslow's books or Balducci, Uh, Memory Man was great.
0: I'll, I'll send you one of um, of Don Winslow's books. I have one. I'll, I'll put it in the mail to you. But I, I've, oh, I've sent you books already. I'm going to send you another yeah, one. I, his
1: cartel series is very good. I read that. But yeah. uh, And so uh, I've read, I've you know, I just reached out to every genre Women's. woman's woman's book.
0: You you, you got cozy books from me because they were the cat books. And I love that. Well, let me just explain. I'm not a bookseller folks. I, I did a fundraiser for the Naval shelter for abused women and children. And in that uh, a couple hundred of my author friends signed books and sent them to me to sell. And Brian generously purchased five books. Um, You also have a James Lee Burke book. And if you get through James Lee Burke, you're going to love his other books. He is magnificent he comes on my show every single year I love him he's and I'm looking forward to reading it oh you're gonna love it you're gonna love it so yeah, the it other is. thing I want to know is um you know you now you identify now as a writer you're also a public speaker a motivational speaker um and it's wonderful um what is the highlight of your day now
1: the highlight of my day is uh well, it's kind of funny right now it's that uh, dopamine rushes from when people tell me they're buying my book but, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the highlight of my day is my time with my wife and my cats and my uh getting to speak with my family those are the things you, i mean you know i mean i you get older your priorities change right yes, your, do. your priorities change and yeah. uh the highlights of my day are different than they were ten years ago uh I look forward to i'm looking forward to getting back into Writing to working on the sequel, and Good. the highlights of my day are with family and my kitties. I love and that, that may sound boring, but that
0: is no, what no, I, no, no. You're speaking to the cat woman here, who has yeah. you know, I I wrangle four cats, so and I have a cat sitting business too. So yeah. I, I understand that. I understand well, it's it's um it's a soft cushion to be sitting in if that's the best part of your day. Um, what do your brothers think? About where you, your journey and where you are now.
1: They have been, I mean, they saved my life. Pam. I mean, Lillard, that we are so close. They have saved, they saved my life when I was trying to end it. Uh, they, it's that simple. And so they, they have been so supportive. We are very That's close. So we live walking distance. We live walking distance to each other here in Dallas. Really?
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Until
1: my, until my father passed away, he lived across the street from me. Wow. Uh, so, uh we're a very close family, something my father instilled. Interestingly, my dad was the three uh, middle of three boys like me. Wow. Uh, he fought in, uh, fought, fought in Okinawa in the Korean War. But wow. they have been very supportive. Look on social media how Mark's been with his yeah, millions and millions of followers, yeah. has been yeah, doing everything he can. I know.
0: I tag him in everything, too, because I you know, <laughs> want him to know I'm doing my best for you.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to get him to do a book talk for me, and we'll see if oh. he does.
0: Oh, that'll be nice. That'll be nice. Yeah, well, you yeah. two can come on and talk about it, about your each, your separate journeys. I'm happy to have you both on. If
1: he would do that, I'd do it. One of the things about Mark is he's very, uh, what he's protective of his family and us, uh, but he's also right. very protective of his time because I'm sure, we'll he, you, is. I'm is sure he is. Time is prime asset, right?
0: I listen, I understand that completely. And yeah. I am protective of my time as well. I understand yeah. that. Um, if I came to you and said, my family member or my best friend is suffering from bulimia or or anorexia or alcoholism or drug addiction. What would you recommend for me to do?
1: I'd, I'd say, you tell, tell me how I can help you. Okay. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me what the, where I'll meet, i I call it meeting people where they are. Tell me what your current situation is so we can figure out and what you expect to see in three months and six months, what you'd like to see. And so then I can be your wingman to find you the right path to resources to help.
0: So I, I often say this when I'm speaking this to people, who, women who are survivors of domestic violence. I'd say, you know, there are, here's a whole lot big menu. You can go take one of everything or you p- can pick a la carte. Most people don't know those things. So when I published a book myself um, of short stories that benefited the shelter, we put all the resources in the back of it. Sure. But, I don't. Kn- I have a neighbor who was said he was in recovery for drugs and alcohol, and he was a straight arrow about it. But I never ask him. You know, what if our other neighbor was an addicted person? You know what? What do you say to someone that maybe you're not really close to, or someone you are close to? What do you say to start that conversation? If you
1: if you want, you know, I've I noticed you're struggling, or uh, that you might not be okay. You don't want to be accusatory or judgmental, right? But if you want to talk about it, I'm here to walk the walk. There you go.
0: There you go. It's always the best answer. Yeah.
1: yeah, you can't make people do uh You know the old cliche, uh, unless they're a minor, right? Where you can force them into treatment, which that's a whole nother story. But uh, right. can't right. make people do what they don't want to do. And this uh, is true. But Absolutely. you can lay the road. You can pave the road for them.
0: <laughs> you can also not be judgmental, and you can say, "I'm here for you," and then mean it. Because I've heard yeah. a lot of people say, you know. She's being in an abusive relationship, or he's in—you know—drinking all the time, and he keeps saying he's going to get out of it. And he never does, and so—and I'm tired of, it and I just can't put up with it anymore. And the fact of the matter is, we all are carrying our own little little baggage around sure. here. And,
1: so and you know have, what I
0: say to that? Have yeah. You
1: considered Alan on? Let's talk about you taking care of you, right? Right. Okay. This is this is that I, I understand because. You, you don't have control over what your spouse does, your boyfriend right. does. Right. You, you, and thinking and, and wanting control can raise as many mel- mental health issues, right? Right. It, it, Absolutely. Trusting, trying to control it. So the, the question becomes, how are you taking care of you? What resources are you giving yourself, yourself to, right? to, to create a positive mental health situation and, and to understand that you can't control other people?
0: This is true. As much Brian, as you like. um, I want to tell you how much I've enjoyed our conversation. This is, a, you know, three times as long as I normally talk to someone, but you're so fascinating and you have such an interesting story to tell. And we're friends and I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. You are my last official interview of the year before we do Yay. our awards. And I have been holding out, you know, waiting and waiting for you to come on. What would you like to say is your p- final words before we sign off?
1: Uh, before we sign off uh, on two fronts, uh, I get I'm sure you get asked this question all the time. People ask me, you know, I'm ready. I am i have a book in mind. I'm ready. I don't know what to do. And I say, here's the biggest problem already. Book. Don't you forget. Forget about book. Just start writing. Just, just start, start writing. writing. Right. There are people that will help you make it a book. book. Right. Right. Like, yeah. Right. So just put your just story down. Just right. Put your story down, especially right. memoir, because that's where I get all the time. Memoir. I don't think I'm competent to advise people on fiction yet, but uh, on memoir, uh, I say, look, how many photos do you have of your life? Pick out ten photos, starting from the earliest point in your life, whether it's maybe it's a baby photo or when you become first your cogniz- cogniz- cognizant memories. Right, and line them out. Write a short story around each photo chronologically. Yeah. String, you have the spine of a book, of there your you memoir. Go. You've you got your chapters.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: And so that's what I tell them. Just people overthink it. And from the other standpoint, if you if you are struggling and I understand the shame, uh, maybe you're uh, writing to uh, compensate for the struggle. You know, there is help and there is hope. There is only one requirement for recovery, Pam, just one. And I ask this question. People say, well, you I say, what is it? You got to want it. This and that. Be alive. Just stay alive. That's right. And stay alive. Stay above ground. That is the only requirement for recovery. And reach out. Reach out. Don't project out the worst possible response because it's hard. And I understand how scary it is. But take that first scary step because the gifts of recovery are wonderful. And the gifts for me just have not been these three books. They've been renewed family relationships, a a wonderful marriage, and so many different prongs.
0: I'm so glad for you. Brian Cuban, it has just been a joy to talk to you. Will you come back someday when you have your next book available?
1: You know I will, Pam.
0: Thank you so much for being with me. And folks, thanks for joining us for this extra long edition of Authors on the Air. I appreciate you all. I hope that your holidays are lovely and and happy. And I want to say thank you, Mom and Dad. And thanks to my producer, Roman. And thanks to my friend, Brian Cuban. Have a good night. Happy holiday. See you in 2020.